Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. There's something I've got to do, Bob. Something I couldn't do while you were here. I tried. You know I tried everything. And I still don't have their attention. Let's hope this elevates their thinking. Today, as part of our listener request, we will be discussing The Rock. Starring Sean Connery. Captain John Patrick Mason, General Sir of Her Majesty's SES. Retired, of course. Nicholas Cage. FBI. Uh, well, my, I'm Stanley Goodspeed. But of course you are. Ed Harris. Mr. Director, you have a very serious problem. A battery of VX gas rockets is presently deployed to deliver a highly lethal strike on the population of the San Francisco Bay Area. This is Brigadier General Francis X. Hummel, United States Marine Corps from Alcatraz. Out. William Forsyth. There's a hostage situation on Alcatraz. Hostage. 81 tourists. The Rock has become a tourist attraction. John Spencer. Mason's angry. He's lethal. He's a train killer. And he is the only hope that we have got. A Michael Beam. You ever been in a combat situation? Fine combat, sir. Chef? An incursion underwater to retake an impregnable fortress held by an elite team of U.S. Marines in possession of 81 hostages and 15 guided rockets armed with VX poison gas. Directed by Michael Bay. So what do you say you do the math? Hand over the gun, now let's go find some rockets! Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. 30 years ago, he was a highly trained SAS operative. Now he's my age, for Christ's sake. I have to get up three times a night to take a piss. It's Galley in Glasgow. Uh, what do you have, a fucking water pistol? Uh, it's Devlin in London. I'd take pride in cutting you, boy. It's Patrick in London. If you're going to San Francisco, don't forget to wear the flowers in your hair. It's Matt in South <laughs> Oh, a little bit of Darby O'Gill there, eh, Matt? Very good. I love that one. <laughs> yeah, well, you and Patrick, and you and Patrick only. Um, yeah, welcome back, listeners, and welcome back, gang. And we are doing a a first for the for the show. We are doing a listener request. Uh, said listener has decided that we are going to watch Michael Bay's The Rock, uh, starring none other than Sean Connery. So, team. Are we ready for it? Are we ready to discuss this here listener request? Yeah, who is the uh, listener? His name is Lewis Norm. I believe that's his real name. I don't think it's like a there's something about Mary where he's a pizza delivery boy. But no, I'm only, <laughs> I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. But yes, uh, so Lewis Norm, uh, long-time listener, got in contact via email and, uh, and said he wanted us to discuss The Rock. I'm sure, though, Matt, this probably would have been one of your picks. Yeah, I was, down the line. I was thrilled when, um, when Lewis, is it Lewis got in touch and, um, I, cause I wanted to pick something when Connery died. I wanted to choose maybe this one or Last Crusade. Last Crusade was the first film I ever saw at the pictures. So, uh, they're probably my two most meaningful Connery outside of Bond, I suppose. But yeah, I'm really on board with this one. So thanks for picking it. Well, should we go around the table for first first viewings on this one? We'll start with you, Devlin. Uh, well, I have seen The Rock. Um, I as uh, this happens a lot 
on these films. I have literally no idea when that would have happened for the first time. Uh, yep. Genuinely no, not even a theory <laughs> as to when I might have watched it. How about it. the era? Were you at school? Or? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It would have been, uh, uh, a couple of, probably a couple of years after it came out, maybe a year, two years. Uh, TV probably. I doubt I, I I didn't seem psyched enough to want to watch it on video, so probably it just sort of came up on TV, possibly even terrestrial television back in the uh, back in the ITV yeah. even movie with a pointless bit of fifteen minute news in the middle. <laughs> um, and I always kind of liked it well enough, but um, had genuinely given it absolutely zero thought until we started to talk about it for this uh, this podcast. I guess um. Uh, it was, it was, it was a bit of an unusual rewatch, to be honest. It was, um, and not in a bad way, but, uh, yeah, kind of strange, uh, as, as a film. It's, um, uh, it's aged quite well in some ways, but, yeah. uh, yeah, bit bizarre, isn't it? Um, yeah. Not something so, you yeah, would have returned to without being prompted. I d- I doubt it really, unless it sort of came up on TV and I probably would have watched about 15 minutes halfway watching it and then not really paid any attention whatsoever, which is, uh, mm. uh possibly a very dismissive attitude to have towards something. But <laughs> it happens that it, you just get those films that you just sort of file away in the back of your brain. But clearly it means a lot to a lot of people because when I was looking it up, it's, uh, and speaking to people anecdotally, it seems to be one that, that quite a lot of, of people, let's be honest, quite a lot of, uh, uh, men, hold this one in extremely high regard mm, yeah no we'll we'll maybe get into that because um i have a theory yeah like i always do and they're always wrong but i'm Shock willing to theory. i'm willing to put it forward yeah <laughs> uh, what about what about you uh what about you patrick i i don't remember the first time i watched it um <clears throat> it's just always been kind of a film i've been familiar with even before we were talking about the possibility of doing it uh i I've now TV like subscription and it's a, it was a film on there for quite a while. It's, it's not, um, at the moment. And it, it would be something that if I came across, I was like, Oh yeah, great. I can easily watch that. I found it kind of an accessible film and fun to, to watch that. So I have, I do recall having kind of fond memories of enjoying this film as a piece of entertainment and watching it when there was nothing else on. I just don't remember when I first watched it and my first impression really, apart from, well, positive, to, to be honest. Um, I hadn't watched it in a few years until, uh, the, 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 the other week, um, getting ready for this. And I've watched it a couple of times in the lead up to, to this thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Gally, like you? Yeah, no, I think, I think very, very similar actually. Um, I kind of always been there, but not in a reverential way. I don't either remember the first time I saw it, but I would probably imagine again when, when young people, cause I was young then, used to watch, uh, you know, terrestrial television as opposed to streaming. Um, I think this would have just been a late night court. There's a few actors in it that I think. I would have gravitated towards the fact that Michael Bean is in it and I'm a huge aliens fan yeah. and Terminator fan would have probably meant that I would have watched this. Also, it feels like, you know, the character from Navy Seals has got another shot. Probably his last <laughs> shot though. No spoilers. Um, but, but yeah, so I think, I think that's what it was with the rock, but I definitely agree with Devlin in that I don't really ever like ruminate on this one with any kind of heft. But when you start digging, 
all of the articles surrounding the rock obviously anniversaries mean that you're going to get these uh, commissions but it seems like it's held in very high esteem especially in the bayverse like this seems to be the one that everyone says oh no unequivocally this is michael bay's best film Mm -hmm. so i'm interested to see one if we agree with that and two what is it that makes this better than i don't know transformers fallen kingdom or something. I can't remember any of those names. <laughs> I've never seen any of them. But dark, yeah. Dark side of the moon. Uh, what about you, Matt? Cause I got a sense that this one, uh, this one's got a special place in the Ridley heart. Yeah. Um, I have to apologize to my school friend, Ben Weaver, first of all, for stealing his giant, <laughs> uh, X rental copy of it. Um, <laughs> we had two video shops in Richmond where I went to secondary school. There was uh, Trinity video, which had like games workshop miniatures and, stuff like that and we used to go to the bakery and get some iced buns and go in there and look at the playstation games and stuff and and so they had that one and then they had a new one called choices which was at the top of the marketplace and they would give away free posters and it was more of a, a smaller chain um and he he found the rock in a in a bargain bin there at some point and i borrowed it and just accidentally kind of hung on to it and i'm convinced he has something of mine but um i talked to him this week and uh, I, I think I was just trying to justify the theft, really. He, I don't think he, he did have anything of mine at all. But I, in my mind, we did an exchange. But I used to watch it all the time, like um, around that era of Demolition Man, 15, 16, when I would I should have been studying for my GCSEs. And uh, instead, I was watching Sean Connery looking like Kurt Cobain and uh, a Beatle maniac, Nicolas Cage breaking into <laughs> Alcatraz over and over again. So, uh, yeah, that was my first experience. <laughs> I like to think your friend at the at the bargain bin, like on Hot Fuzz, <laughs> he's considering <laughs> meet the cop that can't be stopped. Yeah, well, I remember. I only remember it because it was so big. Like the the, the ex rental boxes were massive for some reason. So um, that's the only reason I remember it. It had stickers on it. Maybe that's yeah. why you watched it so much. Yeah, maybe it just felt like oh, I, I don't have to return it or something. I, I... <laughs> so Matt, have you got a synopsis for The Rock? Uh, decorated Brigadier General Francis X. Hummel, played by Ed Harris, nicks off with a stockpile of chemical weapons, takes 81 civilian hostages, and seizes control of former San Francisco Island prison and impregnable fortress Alcatraz. His goal, to force the U.S. government to wire compensation funds to families of Marines who died under his command in covert operations, by threatening to launch deadly VX gas-armed rockets capable of melting 70,000 people and every other living organism in an eight-block radius into the heart of the San Francisco Bay Area. Upon becoming engaged and finding out his fiancée has a bun in the oven, FBI chemical super freak Stanley Goodspeed, Nicolas Cage, is tasked with advising on the mission and extracting knowledge of the famed facility from former guest ex-SAS captain and MI6 operative John Patrick Mason, played by Sean Connery, a man who does not exist, and was jailed after stealing a microfilm containing the US, the United States' most intimate secrets from Roswell, to re- who really killed JFK. Mason agrees to play ball on the condition he will be pardoned and reunited with his estranged daughter. The Fed's green light, an underwater Navy SEAL incursion led by Commander Anderson, Michael Bean which is thwarted when the entire squad is gunned down by Hummel's merciless mercenaries. In a race against time to find some rockets, 
and destroy their guidance chips before the deadline. Goodspeed and Mason must defeat Hummel's elite team, including Dr. Cox from Scrubs, the Candyman, and one of Phoebe's ex-boyfriends from Friends. <laughs> Calling the Brigadier's bluff, the feds refused payment, and a Mexican standoff results in the regretful Hummel being mortally wounded. The threat is eliminated, but not before the president calls in a botched thermite plasma airstrike to neutralize the island, which thankfully misses the hostages and our two remaining heroes. With FBI Director Womack having destroyed Mason's promised pardon, Goodspeed covers for him and lies to the FBI, stating the body was vaporized, leaving him and his new bride free to discover the microfilm and learn their country's deepest, darkest secrets. I don't remember which guy is Phoebe's boyfriend. He, he's, he was uh, a health inspector on Friends. He's really very 90s hair. Uh, but he's really odd in this film, isn't he? He's got some really peculiar deliveries, particularly later in the film where he's, he's chasing after good speed. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's almost like he's trying to do a, a sort of Freddy Krueger. I don't know. It's very strange. <laughs> Maybe Tony Todd told him, if you chase people, you need to say things maniacally. Yeah. So this is uh, not only Tony Todd's uh, return to the Rewind Movie Podcast, who friend of the show, Tony Todd, mm. uh, but also Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer. So we'd, we tackled Top Gun, um, God, what feels like an age ago. Uh, and, and we discussed them, uh, and in part, you know, they are a, a dynamic duo of producers that kind of created a, an aesthetic that, that has long lasted in action films mainly. Um, and this is no different, right? And this is their first, is this their first or is their second Michael Bay? Did they do bad boys? They did. Oh, yeah. I think bad they did, boys, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so, cause it kind of pulls through, right? Like the deep blues are blue and the yellows are very yellow. The, yeah. the midnight hour look is, is still present in the rock. And I, I for one love it. I mean, I've told you this before the meatloaf video. I'll do anything for love is mm-hmm. the best thing that Michael Bay has ever mm-hmm. shot. And he brings it to the rock. Same color palette. It's the template. Everything in that music video ends up in this film and most of his other ones too the the blue hue you're talking about and motorcycles and sunsets and i mean meatloaf isn't in anything but how how much of that aesthetic that you're talking about do you think comes from them and how much comes from tony scott and how much actually comes from from bay that's a very good point yeah i mean are you talking about like like who is the author of this style yeah i mean if you think about like the sex scene in top gun that's yeah. very blue and uh, silhouette yeah. and uh, there's lots of like uh, gradated filters and stuff isn't there yeah you, you called it the t- is it the t- uh, tobacco filter you said last time and uh, uh, they they use a lot of uh, filters on this and and wildly unmatched lighting intentionally uh-huh. so i think which is something that probably like uh, uh gets even wilder as they go through if you think of um for some reason when i was watching this it really reminded me of um enemy of the state yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which, yeah. which just sort of ramps it up even more, which is, you know, uh, uh also has a, a strange link in that it's a, an older respected thespian potentially slyly rebooting a character from an earlier film. Oh, you're talking about the conversation? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. You have, uh, you know, you have Gene Hackman kind yeah. of playing, uh, Harry Cole. Yeah. Well, my my, my favorite thing in, 
in The Rock that was completely unmotivated. I know we talk about um, Andrew Lesney's uh, Where's the Light Coming From, the same place as the music, and I subscribe yeah. to that totally. Um, there's a scene where um, Goodspeed is vomiting in the sink when he's when he finds out he has to go on the on the mission himself. Yes. And outside of the, the little windows in that bathroom, there's him and William Forsyth having a chat. And outside the lights, it just looks like fire. It's like, yeah. Yeah. At the moment, he's, he's in a personal hell. So he's liking it that way, but I don't know where they are at that point. It's, it's insane. Similar, similar sequence though, Matt in Top Gun, when Maverick has just lost goose and he's in his tighty whiteies and, um, and Dallas walks in and the light again, bleeding through uh, the bathroom windows. It's a very, very similar, similar yes. aesthetic. Yeah. But, but my favorite lighting setup in this film though is when, uh, Goodspeed and his wife or, are they having sex on the balcony or something? And there's about a thousand candles around them. <laughs> when the fuck were they supposed to have lit those candles? That's why the I, sex was so lazy because they didn't really get from getting all them candles there. <laughs> Yeah, it was lit by the, the same people who did the uh, the Jean Claude Van Damme. Um, what was the one with all, all those candles in the in the graveyard? <laughs> yeah, yeah, hard target, hard Got the same runner to to put the candles onto the the roof. <laughs> it's very strange, isn't it? Because um, I mean, God, God bless, Goodspeed, Godspeed, but he's mm. he's quite an odd character in, in that he doesn't really have one. But then you, when you're trying to piece together what his life might be in the real world. He must be absolutely loaded. Not only do they live in San Francisco, but they've got an entire rooftop terrace. Yeah, yeah. penthouse like thing. Is it not the most expensive place to live in the States? Well, they, they pay a lot of money on candles, apparently. So he, <laughs> yeah. he needs money for that. I don't know what Carla does. Uh, according to Bay, the way he shoots her in that sex scene, maybe she works in the local <laughs> booty club. I don't know. <laughs> but, but it's, it's strange, right? Like that, um, he's, he's a kind of like high status character that's kind of given, given the, the fish out of water treatment because he's yeah. not ready for this kind of op. He, he's built up as being a coward. And then there's, a, there's an arc to him, which I really like. He starts off a coward and he doesn't swear. And then he, he moves on and becomes a, a killer and a hero. But um, she's also the, the prom queen, and he's also completely loaded, as you say. So he's got this kind of blessed. And he, he also has a line early on in the film. I don't know why I've decided to go straight in on Stanley. It's mainly because <laughs> the film itself is is full of these kind of crazy inconsistencies. But he talks about having like a boring desk job. Yet the first time we see him, he's literally in a life and death moment where he's going to stab himself yes. in the heart. That leads to one of my favorite. Uh, Nicholas Cage moments where he's telling Carla the story about what happened to him at work and he's just naked in that chair for <laughs> yeah. and, uh, <laughs> he's talking about the bomb and he just twangs on one of the strings of the guitar and as, oh, he's, as he's describing the incident that's just my number one favourite Cage moment yeah. I had such an interesting day today yeah I had kind of an interesting day myself oh, okay you go first Oh, just some terrorists decided to send a little care package, box of goodies, which had to be neutralized before blowing up the office. So I took the rest of the day off. Glass of wine, a little guitar, just relaxing. I did I did listen to the commentary on the DVD, Matt, after your recommendation, and it, those were my favorite bits when Cage is like, sometimes you just want to sit in a chair naked and strum a guitar, you know? It looks cool. Like, what? Well, I heard that he'd worked out and... Um, he wanted to be topless at some point in the film. So Michael Bay just 
got it out of the way at the beginning. It's like, yeah, yeah. Work out. you've got a good body. Let's just do this scene and then you can wear clothes for the rest of the rest of the film. But can, I, can I go back to the auteur thing? Cause I've got a bit of an argument for, um, Don Simpson. Uh, there's a case that he is the, the true auteur behind all of this. Uh, that documentary was really interesting. You can watch it for free on YouTube. It's in the, we'll put it in the show notes. Um, the, him, him and Bruckheimer like, had this way of tuning into like political things, topical things. And, uh, they would look for stories. Uh, the quote was stories where they could see the venue. Um, as Simpson said, like the emotionality, he said. And, uh, that's how they sought out their, their projects. He was this guy who would read scripts. Um, endlessly and make these massive um, case files of notes and how to improve them. And uh, some people kind of view them as like these used car salesmen. And some mm. people, um, there was there was some quote about uh, you have to take everything with a pinch of salt when it came to, to Don Simpson. Um, he was like the hedonistic showman of the duo because they're thought of together, aren't they? Like, um, mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he originally wanted to be an actor, which is quite revealing. He was uh, the vice president of production at Paramount. Um, like, you know, uh, Weinstein and like these old coked out producers who kind of traded in sexual favors and with their big mobile phones and their little ponytails. And he, he was one of those kind of guys. And if anyone d- doesn't know about him, he died of a, of a drug related heart failure in 1996, um, just prior to The Rock coming out. So he was, uh, he was out of it by the time the, the the rock came to be. I think it was just after the casting had finished, he kind of uh, stopped working with with Bruckheimer. Bruckheimer had had enough with his uh, antics, I think, and and mm-hmm. they went separate ways. Um, but there's there's a lot of arguments for for him being the driving force behind a lot of the story elements, the visuals, and he was the man behind the scenes, really pulling a lot of strings, particularly on uh, the Tony Scott stuff and. Uh, to a degree, Bad Boys, I think. Well, I didn't really find yeah, out too yeah. much about him behind the scenes on Bad Boys. Well, you don't want to you don't want to inflate these things. Um, but a modern comparison, I guess, would be the the kind of the Marvel way of doing things, where you have a a kind of a formula, an aesthetic, a consistent brand. You know, you don't want to put films and creativity in these kind of uh, marketing terms, but you you know what the products you're going to get. And, and then you find people to, uh, sort of evolve it. And I think that's where, you know, you asked the question about, you know, who's the true auteur of this style. Tony Scott had the ball for a long, long time. And I think Michael Bay took it, ran with it, then got, then created his own, you know, cause, cause the editing style, whatever you say about the aesthetic, a Michael Bay film is edited far differently to a Tony Scott film. Like this film and the camera movement, it does, is there a tripod on set? Are there, is it allowed? <laughs> I don't think it is on a Michael Bay film. He, he, every single frame is an opportunity for him to do something visually engaging. He doesn't, he never sticks to us. Like, I don't think there's a still shot in the film. Like, I'm trying to mm. work it out whether the camera does not I'm, move. I'm, I'm currently, I have the film on in the background because I'm just, I, I wanted to, to, to kind of watch it. Generally speaking, it doesn't. And also what he does, uh, um, Michael Bay, I, I, I assume this is a Michael Bay thing. I don't think this is something that carried over from any of the earlier directors from the, the Simpson Bruckheimer stable, which is that, uh, the camera movement doesn't match. So, uh, the, 
Oh yeah, the they mo- cross the line constantly. The rotation like, all of over the, the place. Yeah, the rotation of the movement as well is um, it will it will start top left and it will roll down bottom right, and then the next shot will be rolling from like mid right across to the left, like crabbing, and then sometimes it'll yeah. sort of uh, it's it's kind of bizarre. I'm. I think Galia recommended this to you that there's a, a a series of YouTube videos by Lindsay Ellis uh, mm-hmm. called The Whole Plate where she's uh talking about film criticism and film theory. Yeah, uh, I watched them today. They're really good. It's it's great, right? Solely through the lens of the the Bay Transformers, which is like the that's kind of uh Bay's final form of his aesthetic, which is where he can completely disregard anything other than just constant uh uh visual kind of heroin or whatever yeah it's but just, a lot uh, of it comes from the, the commercials and music videos too i think yes it's that that kind of aesthetic that's been carried a, over yeah, I, I made a, a list of some of the things he does with the camera he's got that, that constant movement that he calls a kinetic thing that he's going for uh, mm. trucking tracking booming yeah. up and down dollying in there's, yeah. there's always a very wide lens low angle looking up to make people look kind of powerful and uh whip pans and smoke and then a lot of these things can be found in the music videos. I watched the meatloaf one again today and it, it really does. It, it's like sets the, the aesthetic for him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he really kind of picks and chooses little bits out, out of that and puts them in his movies. It can be quite strange because the, the emotional language and the visual language really don't often always match up. There are certain types of camera angle that you would generally employ to suggest emotional <laughs> beats to an audience. And he yeah. quite frequently disregards them watching the, the interrogation scene between, um, Oh, he's the, 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 the guy from Juice Bigelow, Mill Gigolo. <laughs> what, what do you think of this? Yeah. Uh, William, William, William Forsyth. Forsyth. <laughs> William Forsyth. <laughs> uh, during the sequence, you know, uh, uh, quite frequently the, the shots of William Forsyth, they, they, like you say, they shoot up from underneath because he is supposed to be intimidating him and he's, uh, yeah. But that parallax- shoot everyone like that when he feels yeah. like, so does the parallax really doesn't stay because you would think that you should be looking then the reverse shot would be looking down at Sean Connery, but you don't. You're frequently looking up at him as well. <laughs> well, there was this other argument that because everything, it was in another video I saw today on YouTube. Um, I can't check the guy, but it, I, I forgot the name of his channel. But I'll put, I'll put it in the show notes in, in the playlist. And he, he talks about how everything looks so brilliant, looks beautiful, that if everything looks perfect, then yeah. it, it, it loses its power. And like, when, why does a camera move in a certain way? Yes. And, and you lose that, that film grammar. Yeah. It's, it's kind of meaningless. It looks fantastic, but every move really doesn't mean anything beyond looking interesting or cool. I wonder if the audience become victims to the style because you, we've all said that we remember watching The Rock. Um, I think there's dialogue in here that, that is far more memorable than shots and really the only shot when uh when i knew we were going to do this that i could remember is cage arms flailed out with the green smoke (laughs) that was the only actual shot that i could remember from the film like vividly hold on you couldn't remember the obviously able-bodied stunt old woman crossing the road oh yeah That's amazing. No, no, no. We can get to the uh, naked gun car chase, but the, yeah. the, um, yeah, I couldn't remember anything, but I remember that shot and I don't know whether that's just because it was the poster shot or because mm. that is like the iconic shot of the film, but it's also still, which is probably the other reason. And, and it's just that's to me tells me that I never remember any of Michael Bay's 
yeah. like actual sequences. But in the moment, you're like, yeah, I'm fine with this. This is not a problem. Yeah, but you, surely you also remember, like Michael, Hot Fuzz make a deal of it as well, that the low angle, um, um, wraparound track, um, yeah, like solid track. shot, which is, yeah. which is the kind of, that is, Michael Bay has that shot in every film and he has it with good speed. Was it at the end of the car chase, uh, Matt? Yeah, where he stands up the, yeah, it, you know, the bad boy two shot with the helicopter flying over that. Mm. I remember those in all the films because like it, it's that, you know, that Leonardo DiCaprio meme at the minute when he's pointing at the TV, like, Oh, there it is. Yeah. That's, that's the shot that you see in all the Michael Bay films. But I, I have a question. Um, I was trying to do a little bit of research because you guys are a lot more familiar with them. Uh, 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 Simpson Brookheimer than, than I am. <laughs> I was quite, Gally, you're like, me and Gally used to work in a Levi's shop. You're like this, Gally, because apparently Simpson was known for wearing, only wearing black 501s, but then we'd get rid of them after the first wash because <laughs> they weren't black enough. <laughs> Very good choice. <laughs> so I, I wonder, like, they must have obviously found Michael Bay at some point, right? And met him and thought, yeah, he's the man to be able to put our image and our style that we'd like on screen, right? Yeah, I think so. That's what I mean when I, like I said, I don't want to inflate uh, and make too much of a comparison, but not to say that he's a hired hand, but you pick these visionaries and say, right, you're the director and you buy into this style and, and, and you evolve it because if they just kept with the Top Gun, Tony Scott stuff, then I don't think Brookheimer and Simpson films would have lasted. And not to mention, they're massively pervasive. So when we were looking at like, where is it in other action films? There are loads of films that I could say, that looks like a Michael Bay, Brookheimer, mm. da, da, da. like who directed uh, Gone in 60 Seconds? I haven't got a clue. I would have thought I'm it was Michael Bay, it. but it, it's, it's yeah, a, but it isn't, but it isn't agree, Michael it? Bay, is it? it but yeah. it looks yeah. just yeah. like a Michael Bay film. Right. And the other one is, Paris, um, what you would think is, but, yeah, uh, it's but a, it isn't, right? And the, and the other one, cause these are all action films is, uh, uh, Coyote Ugly. Yeah. Looks yeah. like a Michael Bay film. It's a, it's a rom-com, but it looks like a Michael, but Michael Can Bay. You just film? pronounce they, Coyote again for me, please. <laughs> Coyote. <laughs> it's um, it's a so, it's a soft Y. Coyote Scatry. Which also directed by Michael. You, you were just talking about um, uh, this idea of them hiring someone. I think that happened on on Bad Boys. They they liked his work and they hired him on Bad Boys. And then Bad Boys made a lot of money. Yeah. And was successful. So so by the time The Rock came around, Michael Bay actually made them wait he was like this isn't ready i don't like the script i don't really want to do it so he was actually the one in control but there's this myth that you know that they they find these commercial and uh music video directors that that don't have much power yet so they can manipulate them but i don't get the impression that bay can be manipulated in that way there's like stories about him stropping off the set because he didn't uh, there was the scene where you know you know the scene where they do the underwater breach of the of Alcatraz and uh, they wanted to, he wanted that and it had been uh, just a handshake agreement that that would be a scene in the film and then it came down to it and they said look we're just going to drop them in on helicopters we're just going to drop them in like that and uh, Michael Bay said no that it was agreed that we're going to shoot it and he walked off the set for two hours and uh, they threatened him with a I don't know how many million dollar lawsuit and he came back um, came back on, but they, he eventually got his way and they spent, I don't know how much on these little underwater. The, the little uh, miniatures. Yeah, the little miniatures, but just that whole sequence in itself, like really? how it was done is another I, I really thing. Like that. I really well, like learning great. about that sequence. It was really, 
Like the, the, the little the mini figures, miniature divers that were kicking. They're brilliant. The I yeah. thought that was it looks great. Comp- composited very well. Bizarre yeah. though is that um uh, so there is a making of documentary on the, the Blu-ray of of, of that. And yeah. what is weird is I finished the film and then I was looking through the menu and then I saw that and I started watching it and I literally just finished watching The Rock and I was like, I remember this. Uh, what? <laughs> so watching on a sequence, which for whatever reason, literally, yeah. it, it did not lodge in my brain at all, which is I think what we're taking, talking about with the, the visual style of Michael Bay, which is that it's like, it's impressive at all times in your, in your, in your head. And then you just, you just, it doesn't stick. Which is weird. Wow. Okay. That's interesting because I suppose it's just a, a wash of similarity, isn't it? Like Gandhi's yes. saying he doesn't remember anything there. And it, yeah. I mean, okay. You, you may be right, but it's, it's the fact that I've seen it so many times and I return to it constantly yeah, that I, I yeah. know it back to front. It's if I'd only seen it a couple of times, I may feel the same way, but I can't really connect with, with that. Just you talking about like Michael Bay, uh, stepping off a set, like throwing his toys out his pram. My good hmm. friend, um, <laughs> Joe Cox is a is an AD. He's a third AD. I've worked with him a few oh, times, yeah. and he worked on. <laughs> sorry, I'm giggling. <laughs> he worked on a, um, one of the last Transformer films that was shot in England. It had um, oh the sorry, Newcastle one, Anthony Hopkins, and King Arthur. Is it the last King Fallen Kingdom? Uh, anyway, there's the ancient fight in that they shot here in England in Boreham Wood or somewhere ah. uh, where they did Gladiator and Robin Hood. I worked on there. Um, <laughs> and apparently Joe Cox found himself and he, he Coxie was was aware of this but he found himself near Michael Bain like relaying messages from the first it's a big old set fights soldiers everywhere medieval shit going on and apparently he just went up to Joe and was like give me your radio grabbed his radio got on the radio there needs to be more fucking fire or something like that on it and then launched the radio into the woods and stormed <laughs> off back to his monitors <laughs> He has got that reputation, right? I, 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 even watching the stuff on the rock, you can see, you can see him walking, like, well, I say walking, he is stomping around the set. And does, yeah. I, I wonder if, I wonder if he, again, has kind of, cause I do get a sense that he feels like he's in direct competition with James Cameron. And I get the yeah. sense that maybe he thinks that this is the way, well, that's just the way he is. But like to be that demonstrable, that aggressive, yeah, when, in this so film, stupid. his hair, like, his hair is ridiculous. Like, I, he looks like he should have stepped off the set of the Wrigley advert. Like, what, <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't take him seriously if he came up to me and was like, put that fucking, get, like, grab a grip and just be like, do this yeah. now. But, but J- he's Joe got that said, reputation. Joe said to Michael came up to me, he's like, please God, no, please, because we're, we're responsible <laughs> for radio. ADs are responsible for radios, you know? And he's yeah. like, please, no, no, don't throw it. Oh, it's gone. It's gone. <laughs> <laughs> it's on the uh, commentary again. Ed Harris talks about Bay and Bay would constantly ask Ed Harris about working with James Cameron and, and also Michael oh, Bean, yeah. who was a, a big James Cameron um, star. So um, Ed was like, you know, he was an asshole on set. Like, why do you want to emulate him? Mm-hmm. And uh, apparently he just favors this frantic, tough guy image, yelling and screaming. Mm-hmm. And he's got 50 cameras whizzing around. And he's just more comfortable raising his voice than, than, you know, having a, a, a still kind of an energy and, and discussing things with people. He just barks, barks orders by all accounts. And that's just the way he does it. A quick question is when we're talking about, you know, who is the, the, the author of this particular type of filmmaking and the one kind of constant, especially as it comes to Don Simpson, it seems to be cocaine. 
And the question is, <laughs> what would the trajectory of American cinema be like from roughly the late 70s onwards without it? Because mm. most of the kind of the big, you think uh, uh, Marty Scorsese's biggest run of hits, you know, was around Sponsored the time. Sponsored by he, cocaine. Yeah. He was yeah. basically killing himself with coke. Like, he's a small guy. He should not be taking that much coke. Wasn't, like, cocaine on the payroll for The Shining or something for the crew as well? And this is all alleged, by the way, just in case uh, anyone <laughs> comes at us. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Sorry, I read he, somewhere. <laughs> but, um, you know, but, uh, just when it comes to, like, the, um, the, the kind of visuals that we're talking about and how we're saying that, you know, the struggle to remember what happens in a Michael Bay film being based on the fact that there's literally no visual focus because it is never taking the time to match anything. Mm. Uh, and that it's, it favors like a, sh- like a, a sugar rush hit, like a constant adrenaline high of, of energy, even in sequences that don't need it. Dialogue sequence, you can't stop the camera moving. It's like mm. everything's twitchy and everything has to go right now. Um, I'm just kind of uh, uh, a little fascinated. You should write something on how like certain drugs have, have influenced certain eras of cinema. And, and, and then uh, maybe identify the drug of choice to get 2021 back on track. Yeah, we need to do Clarky cat. Clarky cat, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the stuff you, the stuff you chew. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, um, I tell you what though, um, so we've kind of talked about the, the Bay Am, and I think we'll talk about Bay as we go through the entire yeah. episode. Um, but one of the things that uh, I want to kind of nail down is why this one, uh, of all, maybe Bad Boys as well, uh, are so successful, the first Bad Boys. And my personal, uh, like thinking is I think Bay is actually really strong at these oil and water two handers. Like he is, for whatever reason, I don't know whether it's just the scripts, and the, the casting, cause I think he does cast well, you know, you look at, um, Will Smith and Martin Lawrence and then in this Connery and Cage, um, they really do work. And I do love me a good two hander, you know, I'm thinking like 48 hours, midnight run, lethal weapon. And, uh, and I put the rock up there and I don't know what you guys think. Um, but it just built on the- bad boys, didn't it? It, it just, it, the, you had like one comedic, one with a comedic side, the other was leaning more towards the handsome leading man. Uh, and the rock isn't exactly the same approach, but you can tell that it was something that they were building on or, or Bay was, was building on. You ain't seen mm-hmm. Bad Boys 2. <laughs> I, I've tried to watch that three times. I've fallen asleep every, no every time. Yeah. So it's I just too can't get through it. Yeah. I'd not a fan. I, I, everything after Pearl Harbor, including Pearl Harbor. Um, I saw Transformers at the cinema, but didn't, uh, it was just too late for me. Like if I'd seen it when I was a kid, maybe. But, mm. um, yeah, everything, everything beyond Armageddon, like the, the rock and Armageddon are just fantastic to me. I, I love them for what, what they are, but, mm. um, everything after that, I, I fell out with Bay a bit. Well, it's the, it's the, it's the elevator pitch as well, isn't it? I think with Bay. So the simpler the story or the simpler the, the film, the better mm. you can get into a Bay film because this one, just like Armageddon, real simple. Mm. Domestic yeah. terrorists have got Alcatraz. We, we need to send... <laughs> yeah, we're die, die hard to, on the Alcatraz, right? Die hard on yeah, Alcatraz. Yeah. Simple. Armageddon, meteor coming to Earth. Roger. <laughs> yeah, we've got to send, send a drilling send, team up to explode. <laughs> send a drilling team up there. Don't worry about international relations. Just make sure they're all American. That's it. That's, I, and, and I think that's what it is. And um Matt, you had a very, very interesting quote that you'd kind of uh, shared with me offline. And I had never, never heard it before, but it was to do with Michael Bay 
Is it advice that was given to him? He, he took some advice from his granddad when he was young. Uh, his granddad said, if you're going to sell anything, you've got to sell to middle America. And that's how you make money. And uh, he's seemingly never forgotten that. And it's it's in almost everything he's he's done. I mean, you, you talked a bit about um, his love for the military and his um, dislike for the government. Um, so that kind of taps into it too. But in, at the heart of it is that middle America approach, I think. That's, I mean, that's, uh, uh, the idea of like the military as a, just a general concept of like force, like the, you know, guys with their trained up guys doing, mm. doing their job. But yeah. then, yeah, like a disdain for the people who send them off to right. do their jobs. It's kind of, it's a really strange, I, I, I've never really delved too much into Bay's politics because, uh, he doesn't seem to be one who talks about it a lot. It's hard, isn't it? That, that video you talked about, um, goes into it really well. Um, he seems very libertarian, but aren't yeah. they all, all these kind of like, you know, super juiced up guys with very high opinions of themselves tend to be. Could it be like this elimination of the political? It, 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 as far yeah. as like getting ki- kids into the military and things like that, if you eliminate the, the political side and just go with the excitement of it. Yeah. That's a better it's recruitment com- tool. Than and being a hero and killing yeah. people makes you cool kind of thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. I would imagine well, again, the video game thing it plays into what Patrick was saying about Call of Duty. It's all it's all tied in. There's um there's quite a bit in here, Matt, that I've seen in Call of Duty uh, games actually. You know, like I spoke about uh, aliens, um, influencing it as well. I definitely see it here. Mm. Yeah. Well, he frames he frames the military in such a way in all of his films. I mean, I think uh, the Lindsay Ellis. Uh, sort of uh, video essays are fantastic but if we just focus on on the rock um because in transformers i mean he goes he yeah. dials that up to it dials that to 11 but in this it's it's very very clear even with our um antagonist that he is he is scarce to put the military in in a situation whereby they are villainous so yeah. the people that are villains by the end of this are the mercenaries who are doing it for money mm. but the people who are the soldiers it's the Even still humble. valor yeah, Hummel, Hummel is placed in a position where we are sympathetic or we are, we are to, led to, if you, if you want, but you're supposed to be sympathetic to his cause. He's mm. just going about it the wrong way. Yeah. Um, however, he has a point, which is those people upstairs who make decisions, they don't care about those people that put their lives on the line. And it does feed into that middle America thing. You know, I've been to the States many, many times. And the one thing that I've always recognized is that they really do value their armed forces yeah. and, uh, and and bay taps into that and it's such a populist view but it, but in this film it's 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 very easy there's an incredible respect isn't there like on planes and things like people will stand yes. up and, and give soldiers better seats and they'll say thank you for your service and things like that <laughs> and in england we just don't do anything like that at all <laughs> do, you ever, um, do you guys ever watch uh, uh, the eric andre show like Since you mentioned the Tom, um, the Tom Green couch destruction stuff, I, yeah. I, I've watched some of them. Yeah. There's a stupid throwaway gag that Hannibal Burris has where they're just killing time on the show. And he says, uh, you got to support the troops. He's like, do you have to support the troops? <laughs> that, I think he's supposed to support the idea of the troops collectively, but that an individual troop can be an asshole. <laughs> it's like, I respect what y'all are doing, but you specifically are an asshole. Yeah, there's a Kirby enthusiasm as well where Larry doesn't thank a soldier for his service every time he sees him and that becomes a big deal. But yeah, but that's, it's just in the, it, you know, that's, that's just how they approach it, you know, I guess. And, and I guess there's, I don't want to get too political either, so I'll, I'll stop there. But yeah, we, we don't really have that in England. 
No, we don't. We don't. And uh, but but again, it's hard to nail down necessarily Bay's politics. But what we do get a sense of is his world view in all of his films, which is he keeps things real, real simple mm-hmm. to the point where. And this is before we get into like the actual film. Can we discuss some of the simplistic depictions of minorities in Bay's <laughs> film? Because the one thing, the one thing about The Rock, and Devlin, you're absolutely right. This film holds up as far as um the look of it. It, fe- it feels very modern. When I was watching it, I was like, this doesn't feel like it's 25 years old mm. at all. Mm. But my God, does the simplistic African-American uh, characters that are in there, even well, the got, ones we've... that just have one line, we've got the woman <laughs> in the prison who's like, you ain't got a gun. You've got, uh, I got yeah. a motherfucking gun. Yeah. She's the worst there. one is the, the tram driver. Tram. I mean, that, that, what is that about? Why are we focused so much on it when he's like, oh, my baby. <laughs> To be fair to Bay, like a like a good comedian, everyone's a target. A homosexual barber, yeah, damn right. Oh, who did this to you? This is just not right. In fact, it's nasty. Well, it's a grunge thing. Well, it's some kind of thing. Do you think we have time for a sea kelp protein pack and maybe some color? No. Okay. Not very nice, is he? No, he's not. It is all for intended laughs, though, isn't it? And I, we said that the film has aged quite well at the beginning, but those elements for a lot of films in the nineties and eighties for the, for easy laughs and objectified humour, they're the things that really don't age well now. It's a lot, of, a lot of punching down in these kind of films, which is yeah, never a good look. It feels like again, Michael Bay keeping it simplistic. There's an Irish character that says to Sean Connery, who's Scottish, <laughs> yeah. prick, you English, you you English prick. Did I tell you my dad is Irish? Yeah. Like, he's definitely Scottish. That is the strangest yeah. interesting, isn't it? Also, he's never encountered him before in the entire film. It's like, yeah. did, did I not mention this? Like, we've, we've never even met. <laughs> Just talking then of ludicrous things. And I, one thing that always baffles me when I watch The Rock is the insane infrastructure underneath The Rock for the mines uh, and the... the uh, <laughs> well, yes. It's massive. It's fucking massive. That's Where's what that Michael Bay from? described as a, a million dollar set. All of that, those connecting yeah, yeah. tunnels. He's very are you, proud are you of suggesting, that. Are you suggesting that there isn't a, a heating system with flame balls expiring <laughs> uh, <laughs> with, with human sized gaps in between? Ranger Bob lights the furnace every now and again just to keep it going. That's, that's, yeah. that's how we justify it. It's those little movie trope things that are kind of make it so much fun though, don't they? Like, it's ridiculous. And it also leads to one of the best lines, the Michael Bean line, where he goes, you catch one of those flame bursts and you're a corpse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very fucking much, Mr. Mason. You sent us into a room with no exit. The idea is Dillinger. Figured out soon we're sitting ducks. Room tight on time. Use that by the door. Until I open it. I'd like to know how you plan on accomplishing that. Through here. Shitting. I memorized the timing. I just hope it hasn't been changed. Catch one of those flame bursts. You're a corpse. Thank you. Command you sit and never leave a sight, but stand fast, Lieutenant. Have a nice day. When it comes to those those scenes, specifically if we're getting there, um Sean Connery's ingress point 
which is rolling through a special <laughs> which is just like in Galaxy Quest. It's just, why do we even have this room? Yeah, it's just a flame balls and smashing room. You know, every three seconds a flame ball and then every six seconds a big thing comes down and smashes you in a, in a sequence that's specifically timed out. Um, it just felt to me like that's the, the scene that you write in the script, which is like, oh, so here... I need an action scene. And it's like, I don't know, he has to roll through some fire like this, oh. but something less shit. And then you yeah. never got to read it. See, yeah. it well, there's two things there that, um, I think that scene exists so that he can then open the door and say, welcome to the rock, which is like a trailer line, which they can use. And the other reason for like the, these little bursts of action, uh, a, a good quote I found from Bay was, um, he views films like music. Like great songs, like there's a musicality to what he does. He says, "We we're gonna we've dumbed him down a lot, like he's a complete idiot." But he's I don't think he is really. No, no, he, no, he, no, no. I don't know. On the contrary, I think he knows exactly yeah. what he's doing. That 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 musicality thing, though. It, he he talks about action scenes being like choruses. Every good song needs a chorus. Mm. You know, I assume he's talking about you know popular music. Yeah. But, um, I mean, if you know, and so every time the, the action, the, the, there's no real lulls, but it has these little bursts of action. Like the car chase is one that they, yeah. they looked at the script or an early cut. I don't really know. And they said that there was a flat moment in the, in the movie. So that's where that, that car chase was born out of. But he looks at them like choruses, uh, verse, chorus, verse. Oh, that's chorus. interesting because I, I thought that, I thought that car chase was him thinking, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to ape. Steve McQueen's bullet. I kind of had a bit of a theory, Gally, as well, that um, sets like that tend to go to things like Universal Studios. I've, I've been there, they have the Twister area where you get the elements around you. And I, I wondered if they had eyes on it being some sort of, um, it's hot, you don't call it a ride, I don't know what to call it, you know, a theme park. And Well, it, it is though. I mean, look at the stuff with the trolleys. I mean, that is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. That is literally ridiculous. What is that doing in Alcatraz? What is that even doing? Exactly. It's mad. Um, that's what you used to say about these kind of films, right? Because like these days, if you want to denigrate a film, especially one that is uh, uh, an action film, which is pitching to a wide audience, you'd say, oh, it plays like a video game. Whereas previously, back in the 80s, they would say, oh, it's like a theme park attraction. It's like a thrill ride. It's got nothing to it. It's just that's what they used to say Michael Bay's films were like. So I guess, yeah, he's just taking it super literally. It's like, mm. yeah, we're runaway minecart underneath Alcatraz. <laughs> I do, I do kind of like the courage of that conviction th- throughout though. Not everything has to make sense. It's, it, it's just aesthetic. It's just, yeah, just, you know, just to accelerate you from one scene to the other and just having fun with it. Kind of touched on in, in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, because he's just such a legend who pops in right at the end. But this, this for me feels like, one of my favorite Connery performances because he's, he's winking, he's nudging, but he's, he's, he's taking it seriously. I, I, I do enjoy him in this film. I think he's great. Yeah. I, I wanted to start with just a, a couple of things about his demands. Um, because I, I want to wax his car a bit at the end, but, uh, some of his demands are interesting. Like I think you're paying for presence when you get Connery, you know, he's this massive six foot plus guy. Bay said he had giant hands when he met him and shook his hand. He was meeting this giant. Uh, and he's a really intimidating presence in real life. He doesn't suffer fools. He likes playing golf. And uh, somebody talked about his posture as well, like how he's got this incredible posture and that helps inform his presence on on screen. And and when asked about it, he said that came from golf as well. So everything seemingly comes from his <laughs> golf game. Good Scotsman, um, that's why. Yeah, uh, it was in his contract that... Um, all of his coverage would be filmed first. 
yeah. uh, before cages. So he can piss off back to wherever his trailer is or whatever. I don't know. Or maybe he stays there, but I don't know. Um, he was, he brought on his own guys to write his and other people's dialogue, Dick Clement mm. and Ian Lafrenet. Uh, lads uh, from, uh, from all of the British sitcoms ever. Oh, right, right. Um, yeah, he brought them on because they know how to write for him. What, what did they write on, Dev? I think they wrote on Dad's Army. I'm, I'm Dad's almost Army. certain. Wow. Um, funny. um, he wanted the water to be heated to 90 degrees. Um, <laughs> for, for all those interior sequences. Um, uh, there's one more. He wanted, uh, the producers to build him a cabin on Alcatraz so he didn't have to keep going back to the mainland every day when he was uh, filming. So they did. They just built him a little cabin. That's he cool. lived on Alcatraz. It, it's no surprise that he, <laughs> he wore a wig in this and the hunt for Red October and Entrapment, but most people, might not know that he wore a wig in every James Bond film as well. He went bald at a very young age and uh, it was kind of an extended hairline that they, that they done. So he, he's had a wig all of this time, but I, I think he looks particularly good in this one. He's a bit of a silver fox and mm. you know, the, the, the wig really helps it. It's they, yeah, they don't look wiggy. No, yeah, it's a classic, no. it's a classic short I, back and sides. So right, yeah. I think the main one that they use, the kind of slightly pineapple-y, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the sort of mod vibe, not the grunge one, the other one. Yeah, the the one that the sort of uh, the Paul Weller esque kind of uh, <laughs> it's the, a mod. The spikes. Yeah. It's um, there are moments when it looks a a, a little ropey. Okay, yeah, I, I didn't notice. I was fine. Like, the long hair looked cool as well, and the long hair looked very cool. Well, I don't. I, can... th- I don't think the costume designer went to Maury's wigs. They they no, seem no. like they, they worked pretty well. <laughs> He's underwater a lot. You have to be careful. No, the wigs is but, ma- makeup, um, not costume. The uh, if I can be be nice to him a little bit, I've got a little bit of a tribute. Um, I think there there are moments like uh when he gives Goodspeed the thumbs up and walks away into the underground smoky labyrinth, um, like really great moments for him and. There's also this stuff at the end where he seems to transcend space and time. What he does a little jog and then he's at the other end of the yeah. Alcatraz. Yeah. <laughs> and use the underground mining system to get there. It, it's a really yeah. cool way to, to develop that mythology of uh, Mason and of, of Connery. Mm-hmm. And he vanishes yeah. in a very cinematic way. There was another scene that was shot where he was reunited with his daughter and they were driving in the desert. And uh, he said to Bay, like, why didn't you include the premiere? I think, why didn't you include that, that scene? And Bay was just so pleased with the way he disappears uh, mm. at the end where he dis- where he tells them where the microfilm is. He, he tells mm. Goodspeed where the microfilm is and uh, he just kind of vanishes in a very beautiful way, I think. And there's some other stuff where he's silhouetted and kind of, um, and he said to Bay, um, I really like the way that looks, that looks really cool. And, uh, but then there are other quotes where he calls Bay a cocksucker and a fuckhead. So who knows whether he had a good time on the, on this film or not, but uh, I was very puzzled at the end. I didn't read it as uh, a Bond film, actually. I didn't think about that at all. I've never watched it with that in mind until mm. I read it. Even Connery was like, I get to be James Bond again in this unofficial yeah, kind of Bond yeah. role. And I do, well, yeah, something about Connery in this film. He's just fucking brilliant. Um, I, I didn't notice it until the research for this, really. There, yeah, there's all the, trained by British intelligence. Um, he's the original actor to play Bond on film. Uh, I just like that they, they didn't they make a about, deal about him being older. You know, he's just a really capable, cool as fuck character, and he's great. That was my that was my favorite bit, Patrick. You know, when in an era 
you know, beyond the rock when we had aging action stars from the eighties, like Arnie, Stallone, Willis, and they all did these Jerry actions. You know, we've talked about Neeson doing it. I mean, Christ, he can't run, but he can snap a neck. Um, but the, but for whatever reason, like they didn't look at the rock as a blueprint for how you do older, older star transitioning, but still being able to be badass because all those ones that Arnie and Stallone did, they made such a point of them being like, Jesus, you are way too old. Whereas in this, they, they make a couple of comments. I think he has a comment about like, the last time I swam this, it was 30 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, but, yeah. but they don't make such a deal about it and they don't, they don't reduce him down to, he's just old as fuck. Uh, like, he's able to take down all the Marines and you believe yeah. it. Like no one ever goes, I don't think Connery would ever take down yeah. like, all these Marines. There's a definite respect for the characters in the film and, and even with Ed Harris, cause we don't need to talk about his age as well, but he's just, uh, it, I suppose Michael Bay films and Bruckheimer as well, they come with a certain loaded sense of the respect to the military, the, the US military. And I think that's what, um, Ed Harris, uh, does very well in this film as well. Did you see in the outtakes where he's calling him sir? <laughs> yeah. Stand in the light, sir. Yeah. I don't he's understand what you mean, <laughs> sir. Yeah. Oh God, Ed Harris. He brought so that intensity to it though. And, and again, just, yeah. just a subversion of character. Like, this is a really good example. I, I, I don't mean to dismiss and go off Connery here. Sorry, I don't know whether we finished with mm. him. But with, with this character, oh, I forgot the bloody name. I've got it written down. Hummel. Hummel, Hummel thank you. It, it's a really good bad guy with a motive, with, with kind of confliction, and you're, you're quite sympathetic towards him. You know, when he asks the girls to leave, like, tell t- you, you need to leave Alcatraz, he's there's some thought. I really like that arc to him as well as just Connery being like well again it's like it's like a prototypical of of villains that we get nowadays Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's the evolution as well of the 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 mad bomber domestic terrorist Mm -hmm. that was sort of throughout the whole 90s you know if you think about Dennis Hopper and Speed motivated by money and being Dennis Hopper that's it uh, and revenge, yeah, that's all you've got. Uh, blown away, which no one has seen apart from me. Tommy Lee Jones, just a mad bomber. Oh yeah, bomber. yeah, I know that. Um, I, I, I love it. I need to get yeah. Devlin to watch it because he'll definitely <laughs> enjoy it. Um, but, but this feels like a, a rounded character. He's still a villain, but you are sympathetic to his cause. And even at the end, you know, I think he says like, "Forgive me," or "What have I done?" And you. You, you buy, you buy it because Ed, you cast Ed Harris. Like, I don't think Ed Harris would do this if he was just the quote unquote bad guy who's got a hostages. I don't think he would take the role. Another thing that separates it from Bond is that it's, um, Bond villains are notoriously stupid. You know, there's only yeah. one instance here where you place someone in an easily escapable situation and that's when they get put in the, in, back in the cells after they're captured. And Connery manages to break out of the cells again. It's not an easily escapable situation, but it's arguable. But Hummel's arc is really solid. Like what Patrick was saying, he's repenting by, by the end. Uh, and it's all the way through. He's regretful when the first guy gets killed. That there's that essential scene where you see what the VX gas actually does to someone. Mm. Uh, that one guy that gets left behind and David Morse says, uh, sorry. And, uh, so you, you can see Hummel there shoots him a look doesn't he yeah, yeah well he knows that that's the first time a life has been lost because of what he is is doing and it happens again mm. um obviously in the uh the shower room when uh bean's team is completely wiped out and he he's devastated really at that and then mm-hmm. af- after the uh mexican standoff at the end like you said galley he he really regrets his actions by that point it's a very thorough 
arc is very solid. But Matt, they don't, uh, I don't think they undercut the character because at no point until the moment when he changes the trajectory of the, the bomb, do mm. I not think that he's got the courage of his own convictions. I don't ever, I'm never, so I'm sympathetic to its cause, but it doesn't, un, doesn't undercut the threat. You, you think he's capable I, of it? I still think he's thing. capable, yeah. Yeah, because we've seen him take down Michael Bean's Navy SEALs. He didn't want to, but he, but he did, did do it. Yeah. 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 Um, so, and eventually. Melting a stadium you know, full of people slightly worse, but. Slightly, well, um, <laughs> you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a madman. We, we bluffed. They, they called it. What the fuck is going on? You changed the coordinates, didn't you, General? That's affirmative, Captain. So now they think we're gutless? The feds? They think we won't actually do it? They're gonna come at us with everything they got. Air and sea. They're gonna bomb our ass back to the Stone Age. They don't know we missed on purpose. Great. We're not gutless. We're incompetent. That right? I don't think I like your tone, Captain. We planned for this contingency. Load the VX into the choppers, take four hostages and evacuate. Consequences of our actions, I'll face alone. Excuse me, General, but what about the fucking money? There is no fucking money. Mission's over. Bullshit, it's over. You're talking to a general, soldier. Maintain discipline. I'm not a soldier, Major. The day we took hostages, we became mercenaries. And mercenaries get paid. I want my fucking money! This mission was based on the threat of force. I'm not about to kill 80,000 innocent people. Do you think I'm out of my fucking mind? We bluffed. They called it. The mission's over. One more thing on, like, Connery and just kind of characters are developed in this as well. It's weird that you spoke about, like, Connery actually being the main character. And I think that he has a better developed relationship with the... You know, like Danny Goodspeed does his wife and she's pregnant. That's all very formulaic and she doesn't have much to do, which which is... Bechdel test type thing. It was a bit of a failure, but I think they actually did it a bit better with um, the motives of and what he his stakes with Connery trying to get back to his daughter and lost all those years. I don't know whether it's a performance thing and how it was written, but I might have been the music as well. The music, the music yeah. helps, yeah. And then not not a yeah. thousand but, candles around. <laughs> it's more I no, no. But I, I I do I do agree, Patrick, because um, I think the you know the Carla character, Goodspeed's you know pregnant. Uh, fiance just ditch that because she's got absolutely nothing to do and she doesn't really pop up in his consciousness apart from a couple of times where he's like i have a i have a pregnant wife. but apart from that like goodspeed <laughs> could could have just been goodspeed trying to protect the city and i do think that it's important for mason to have something because you have to believe mm. that this isn't going to be a kamikaze mission for him that if he's going to do it he's going to do it to protect his daughter, i like the understanding that he's he has forced. been locked up for years and he's you know, he, he misses, I don't know, he's missed out on an opportunity to have his real life. And I, I, I yeah. that comes across a, a really well. Whereas I just kept thinking, like, why is Carla in San Francisco, the danger zone? This doesn't, that, why is she there? The, the jeopardy of that, like their loved ones, Carla, who I quite like, Gally. I mean, maybe it's because she's, no, she's, no, she's, she's good. Pretty, she, she's good at what she does, but, but she's got nothing to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but she motivates certain things. I mean, with, with, uh, both of their loved ones are in San Francisco, which, puts uh you know it ups the tension a little bit as far as the rockets you know uh, killing their loved ones specifically if they don't get the job done um so uh, yeah you could argue but they, I, they I do live tyler it, it, it's again in armageddon though don't they mm. yeah but at least uh, they give live tyler more scenes like yeah, okay, carla yeah. is literally 
we see her come in. She's pregnant. I also think like definitely a Bayism. She proposes to, to Stanley. That felt a bit weird. I don't know about you, but I was like, really? What? She would propose to this guy here. You know, he has definitely got a wig. I know. He was playing guitar and he was naked. (laughs) (laughs) This is true. But I just, I just found it very odd. The pigtail stuff. I was just like, why, why is she now in lingerie? That's very gay. And there's a, there's a weird line there. Like Nicholas Cage talks about in the commentary about there's so many weird things on the commentary. Did you hear the thing about Elvis and the, um, uh, am I the only one who picked up on that? He tell during the scene where he's talking to Connery, um, uh, about Archimedes and the, the oh, being yeah. an innocent man and all that. Um, it, there's a two-way mirror with Womack on one side and there on, on the other. And uh, Nicholas Cage on the day told this story about um, how a rumor, how Elvis Presley had a two-way mirror in his house and he used to get girls in like underwear uh, yeah. to, to, to go in and, and play with chimps on one, <laughs> on one side of the mirror. And he would watch them through the, through the two-way mirror and he'd go, just go and play with that chimp. And he'd send, send them in. And, uh, this is this bizarre story about Elvis. And he said, uh, that he brought that into his performance somehow during, during that, um, during that point. He, got, he used to talk to women like that where he's talking about naughty peach persuasion. I could eat a peach that, for that hours. <laughs> yeah, that stuff. He, he's, he's saying all these odd things. He said that's how he used to chat up women. And, and he just remembered how he, the kind of things he used to say before he was in a relationship. And, uh, and he just started repeating that stuff with Carla. So all of that came from, from him. You've got like mixed feelings on, on Cage Devlin. What do you think of him in this, you know, post, post Oscar? Now he can do what he wants. Now he's validated, uh, himself in the industry and he's no longer Coppola's nephew. He's Nick Cage. Well, I would say I'm, I'm probably quite firmly pro Cage. I feel like he's earned the right yeah. once. I, uh, um, about your Cage t-shirt once. You did for my birthday, yes. Uh, it's very cool. Um, uh, weirdly, I was going to say, you know, when we were talking earlier about the cinematography and stuff, uh, uh, I know we're not big on uh, uh, random trivia here, but uh, did not realize that uh, Coppola was uh, related to the cinematographer. John Schwartzman is oh, wow. a half-brother uh, to uh, Jason Schwartzman and is part of the really? Coppola clan. Blimey. It's, um, Great. And he shot Armageddon too, right? He did both. I believe so, yeah. And he's, he's gone on to be quite probably does all the, the new Jurassic World stuff and, mm-hmm. um, didn't seem like he'd done much before this. It's quite surprising that he got such a big gig, but he's very good. Um, but getting back to, uh, Nicolas Cage, I quite like that Nicolas Cage's career has kind of the, the way it's sort of broken down in a way, uh, and, and, you know, the, churning out what could be considered like DTV trash. Like at least he's having fun while doing it and he's mixing in a lot of very interesting projects. He's just kind of unfiltered, but it's not too dissimilar to like the later career of guys like, uh, like Boris Karloff or Bella Lugosi, you know, like guys who Mm. they had a career and then it it peaked. And then afterwards they, they found themselves sort of floating around and just grabbing whatever gigs. The, The good thing about, uh, cage is that, he carries enough cachet that he can actually get interesting things made purely off his own bat, you know, and, and will work with uh, people who are kind of talented and strange. So having done Mandy, uh, mm. he didn't, it's not like uh, uh, it's just, it's just weird. He worked with a guy who had previous forming, creating a very interesting kind of odd art house film. Same with uh, the color out of space. 
uh, I know Matt and Joe as well. Have you seen Joe? Yeah, oh, even Bad Lieutenant as well. Working with uh, yes, yeah, so you got um, uh, specifically on the color out of space. I know Matt, you're a, a little fascinated by the the life and career of what is his name? The the British director of um oh the um Richard Stanley. Richard Stanley, yeah, the, the, the uh, Doctor Moreau. Um, Island of Dr. Moreau director, yes. or he kicked off it. I watched that documentary on, on your uh, recommendation and I. Oh yeah, I love that documentary. He's a, he's a legit weirdo. It's yeah. a, a very talented, legit weirdo. And, and I think yeah. that, um, this is a strange, I guess that what's odd about Nicholas Cage is that the, his career as an action star is the aberration. And it is so weird that he has managed to sort of string that out for as long as he has. Yeah. Really bizarre. You know, he was, but this cage tax and this idea of the cage tax season that you can have, of watch all of his films where he just does anything. Yes. Um, so I'm, that, that seems dangerous. to be kind of, uh, yeah, that seems to be kind of dying down a bit now and his choices are, they're still scattered, but he's picking some really interesting, yeah, um, roles. Um, so he, he's, he is obviously a, a, a bag of ticks and, uh, and, and odd choices, as you say, but, um, I don't know. At least he's having fun. I'm fine with that. If he could yeah. to the career or something like a late kind of Bruce Willis, who just looks like he's heavily narcotized and he's yeah. having the worst possible time you could imagine. Like he's acting under duress. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, that's so, so true. And he's, uh, he's good in this, isn't he? And I, like I said, I, I thought, um, I was surprised because I'd always remember this as, as part of the Nick Cage action oeuvre mm-hmm. uh, period of his career where he really was uh, the, the shining light in this. But I was, I was very surprised at how much he conceded to the stage to, to Connery, but he works well. Like I said, that oil and water two hander, he yeah. does his bit in this film. Like even though the film slightly contradicts the characterization, uh, Allah, he's just a geek who works behind a desk and who shoots little plastic guns, but then, the I next scene is, is in life and death. It is, yeah. It is, it is an arc. I guess it's because the Ferrari drive-in bullet <laughs> yeah, slightly, <laughs> slightly means that when he's told he's going to go on an op and he throws up, that, that doesn't really work for me. It's like, right. Really? Yeah. He's happy to, to speed through the city, but he's not happy to go on the mission. My, my favorite Nick Cage, um, line is just this throwaway thing. Um, he goes, Oh, uh, neat, neat plane. <laughs> When he sees the, the plane in the hangar, it's like nobody wrote that. He came on and just, and, just said it. and the other thing about the oil and water uh, that I liked was the, where good speed gets to flip it for a second, where all of a sudden he's in charge when they find the rocket and he's describing how it kills you. And Connery is holding it <laughs> like, like a baby and uh, his face is just frozen. And uh, th- that's the moment that Nick Cage gets to, to, to flip it he raises his voice at him and he, and he he can prove his worth the second you don't respect this it kills you put it over there you've been around a lot of corpses is that normal what, the feet thing yeah the feet thing yeah that happens I'm having kind of a hard time concentrating. Can you do something about it? Like what? Kill him again? Listen, I'm just a biochemist. Most of the time, I work in a glass jar and lead a very uneventful life. I drive a Volvo, beige one. But what I'm dealing with here is one of the most deadly substances the Earth has ever known. So what do you say you cut me some friggin' slack? 
Patrick suggested that we should do a top three Nick Cage. Uh, did, did anyone do that? I'm a big fan of Kick-Ass, mainly for Nicolas Cage's uh, <laughs> Big Daddy. I think he's fucking great, Kick-Ass. Um, Face-Off is like Ultimate Cage and <laughs> they're like head-spinning Vickers stuff that I really love and Pete... Grab, grabbing teen girls' butts and going, ah. Crazy Cage, right? <laughs> I, I, I'm I a big fan of, of that yeah. Cage and that film. Um and Conair. I love, I love Cage and Conair. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like that he's, we, we, you know, like, we spoke about the kind of action hero element in this film. I like that Conair is full on white vest, <laughs> standing in the wind, long hair. It just, yeah. uh, uh, Cage is great in that for me. We have to do that at some point. I'd love There's a shout, out, a shout out to, um, uh, bringing out the dead, uh, as well. And what, one of my yeah. favorite, also just take this moment to say my favorite ever Nicholas Cage thing ever is, uh, an interview he did on Terry Wogan's show in the early nineties. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and if you've not seen it, it's on YouTube and we can put it in the show notes, but he cuts yeah. out. Yeah. <laughs> he just does this crazy forward roll. with us kicking the air, throwing money at the audience. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just. I mean, that's everything you kind of need to know about Cage. Um, there's a really yeah. funny joke that I forgot the actor, one of the guys on, um, Big Bang Theory does, he does an example of one of his films where he recites oh, the yeah, alphabet. He's great at the impression. Like, a, yeah. B, C, you know, you gotta alphabetize. And there's <laughs> moments in this film that I love as well where he, the candle scene that we mentioned and the girl, uh, hit Carla on him and he gets the phone goes like, this yeah. is not happening. This is not happening. And, it, only Cage can do that, can't he? Only Cage just when he when he orders a coffee uh, is it a coffee or a drink for Mason? Like, can we get a cup of coffee for him? It's just <laughs> I love Wild Cage, man. It's great. My honourable mentions would be Rumblefish, which he has a small <laughs> part in a superb film. He's fantastic in Rumblefish, yeah. Um, uh, and adaptation we talk about a Ooh, lot, which he's great yeah. in. Oh, so good. and uh, Wild at Heart, which I enjoy. But my personal top three would be Con Air at three. And uh, leaving Las Vegas at two, which is the one he won the mm. Oscar for, he's with Elizabeth Shue, he's incredible in that. And then number one, I agree with you, Patrick. Bringing out the dead would be my my oh, favorite. Man, it's that's, a dark one, but a, yeah, it's a very personal one to me because we had a very similar experience to um, uh, Patricia Arquette's character oh, wow. with uh, with our uh, granddad, and we, um, we kind of went through a very similar thing. And when I watched it recently, it was just very, it hit a very personal note. So I, uh, that's my favorite. Cool man. Nick Cage. Uh, Gally? Uh, well, I'm going to be really boring, um, but they're, they're, they're very close. Like, I could do a top 20 Cage. I don't know. He definitely made more than 20 films. Um, <laughs> Bangkok Dangerous didn't make the top 20. <laughs> uh, but, but I'm going to go with, uh, I'm going to go with number three is going to be The Wicker Man. Oh! Because I, 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 I honestly, I honestly, that film would not, <laughs> exist as in it would have just fallen off the plot but that is probably one of the weirdest performances and yet just utterly just you can't take your eyes off him because you're like what's he going to do next is he going to punch is he going to punch another girl in the face i think he might um so yeah i'm going to go with number three is the wicker man that's my like goofy goofy cage uh number two is adaptation um, and it's, it, it, this is me being a little bit of a stick in the mud. I would love for Cage to be able to ascend to that, that place again, where he could be a bit more Philip Seymour Hoffman like, where he's doing these very, very intricate, 
almost indie small roles where he can and, and the good thing about adaptation is he's playing two separate characters he does them really really well he sells it that film i don't think works without cage being kaufman and then kaufman's you know imagined twin brother and he's so great as donald like he's so affable and nice and kind of dim-witted you know the three um you know, trick, <laughs> trick photography like just all that stuff is just, <laughs> just so good uh, so and and for number one it's going to be the one that he won the oscar for which is leaving las vegas i think he's just it's just so so good in that but i do love all of his weird action turns you know knowing was close knowing <laughs> performance well when he connects the dots and he's like wait a minute nine plus eight plus three just so committed like that is probably one of my fate you know only nicholas cage can get away with that kind of simple math so yeah that's my three what about you devlin um i think they've all been mentioned uh uh oh no actually one of them hasn't uh so yeah honorable mention would be uh to mandy just because i think that that is kind of the culmination of the late career cage throw shit at the wall and see what sticks kind of stuff it's i don't know if he's going to be able to top that as far as like midnight movie mass like madness cage uh i also thought honestly i he's not especially good in it but i think it really works anyway is um drive angry 3d oh (laughs) of of the sort of the dtv trash that he's doing i guess he went to the cinemas but yeah that went to the cinema but it's it's you know it's it's pure trash and it's uh it's quite fun uh so number three would be wild at heart yeah yeah. like um uh the ability for him to be able to play around in the sandbox of a uh of a very strange uh david lynch universe really helps number two where mine is also adaptation like you said it's uh, it's really kind of nuanced and and carefully calibrated and the fact that he's acting against himself is uh it's remarkable how seamlessly pulls that off and uh, number one is uh raising arizona yeah i'm glad you said that Uh, i've forgotten yeah i just i really I thought you do Vampire's Kiss. I love Vampire's Kiss. I really do. But, um, uh, for kind of that, there's just something remarkably like lovable and like human cartoon about him in Raising Arizona. Mm-hmm. Uh, also hearing that he based his performance on, um, uh, uh, the Roadrunner. <laughs> I don't know yeah. whether he said the Roadrunner. No, you know, he said Woody Woodpecker, which seems brilliant. Even better. Uh, this is hard. This is a really hard one because I, I may have rushed my list and gone a bit more silly and because I was in that mood for Cage after The Rock. But none of us actually mentioned The yeah. Rock for him for a performance. But I do. Maybe that's, that's, no, he's a, good. that's he's a better good. one he's quite top three, for me. Yeah. But I forgot well, about Adaptation well, and Bad Lieutenant. Yeah. He's fucking awesome. In, in, oh, he's great in Bad Lieutenant as well. Yeah. He, he's perfect because he's, he's as, as washed up as the character that he's playing at that point as well. So, so it's kind of, kind of fitting. But the, um, no, he's good in The Rock. I don't think Connery comes off as well as he does without Cage. It's good, it's good chemistry. I find it in, uh, yeah, it, there really is. And that's what I mean by that kind of two-hander. You know, we've seen it done badly. Um, but this, this really does nail it. Their, their chemistry on screen is, is clear. And it's some of my favorite stuff is when they're just, uh, you know, he's got a gun now, sir. <laughs> well, get that <laughs> gun. All the, guns. <laughs> yeah. all the guns now, sir. Yeah. Um, yeah, all that kind of stuff works. And, um, it's believable because he does have to, you have to believe that Cage by the end of it is going to be the, the ultimate hero in this, this tale. So he has got a little bit of heavy lifting to do. And that moment where he shoots, uh, Connery's been attacked by Tuco Salamanca from uh, Breaking Bad. <laughs> Very good. And, uh, he, he, he guns good. him down. 
And uh, the way he does that, he's kind of shouting as he does it. And he's accurate. You can imagine him on the range being okay with, with the handgun. <laughs> imagine it. But the actual moment he kills someone for the first time, you can... Nick Cage does that very well. You can see a change well, in him. Because like, it, yeah. Cage is all about the eyes, isn't he? And he does a lot with yeah. that, um, as well as outbreaks of shouting. What, who plays Warmack? Because he is my oh, well, favourite in West Wing. Of he's them. in the West Wing. Oh, his yeah, yeah, his yeah. disdain for Mason carries through the entire <laughs> film. It is so funny. It's like, at the end, like Mason, everything's is, been uh, everything's been thwarted. The terrorists, <laughs> the terrorist threat is gone, and all he cares about. I want to, I want to see Mason? the body. <laughs> where is? <laughs> There's a moment where uh, on the commentary where Bay talks about the day Michael Bean froze when he was giving that speech before they leave to uh, to do the incursion. And he's got Connery in front of him and the entire team of Navy SEALs and uh, Nicolas Cage. And he just lost his confidence that day. He just wasn't delivering it the way he needed to, to, to be authoritative. And he had to take him in the trailer and say, you know, you've got to be, you've got to be in command here. You've got to do it. And I thought that was quite revealing of maybe one of the reasons why Michael Bean didn't make it to that top tier even though he has mm. the talent and the presence and the capability it's, it's just that there was something blocking him and i wondered yeah. if if that played into confidence at all all right listen up mr mason will run point for us lieutenant shepherd will be attached to his hip you breathe he breathes with you you piss he helps understood Dr. good speed is our specialist when he neutralizes the threat we launch green flares and we wait for the cavalry. Make no mistake, gentlemen, we are in the fight of our lives against maybe the greatest battalion commander in the Vietnam War. I shit you not. Any questions? Slow up. So we've talked about um, sort of the Bay will will view, and we've talked about military versus government. Um, uh, these films all have like lines that are inherently super stupid, but I kind of love them armageddon's got loads of them um matt and i were talking offline uh and feels pretty much the smartest person in the world you should listen to him my my favorite one in the rock is uh when the general uh no the admiral says uh what are the chances of getting nuclear (laughs) plasma thermite on a (laughs) operational within the next 48 hours and then the other general is like an act of God. <laughs> <laughs> you're immediately like, it's just, I, I, I listen, I have, I don't have the inside onto the Pentagon and how it works, but I'm pretty sure that that doesn't happen. But I love the fact it's, it's, it's proper movie stuff, right? Movie trope stuff. Like someone comes out with a line that's like, Jesus fucking yeah. Christ. Yeah, there's some cool dialogue in this film, isn't there? Like, yeah, there's all the Billy Bob Thornton stuff with the, the guy coming, we have 18 days. Until it hits Earth, everything is very hyped <laughs> and, and over dramatic. We talked about boardroom bullshit and how um, mm. Bay is the king of boardroom bullshit. Mm, and he makes yeah, it interesting. Yeah. Cameras are whizzing around, the lines are ridiculous, but it's very entertaining. Thermite plasma incendiary systems can burn hot enough to consume VX, but they're still in the test phase. It's not operational. Hummel knows this. We are dealing with one smart son of a bitch. What's it going to take to equip a flight of F-18s with thermite plasma within the next 36 hours? An act of God. Excuse me. All right, we can try. But I strongly urge you to consider the use of this as a secondary initiative. And we have to go to our primary initiative, uh, Admiral. Sir, I'd like to bring in our SEAL ground commander, Commander Anderson. 
Mr. Womack, who is your best chemical biological? Man? You know, you were talking about Simpson and Bruckheimer. They, they kind of like trawl these spec scripts, and this feels like a spec script. You know, we've we've talked about the the roller coaster ride of it all. Um, it, it kind of feels like they just went. I could imagine if we all sat down in a room. Not that we would ever come up with anything as good, but we would all sit in a room and go right. Think about famous landmarks. Think about Die Hard films. Right, let's do a Die Hard honor. So they go with Die Hard on Alcatraz. That might be the start in the jumping off point. But they, they got in all sorts of writers on this. And did they get Sorkin? I can't remember if, who came in as well. Oh, there's a lot of weird uh, coincidences there. There's the Mexican standoff, which was a big Tarantinoism at the time. There was the hypodermic needles, which is all very Pulp Fiction. And there's some other stuff as well. Like this idea of the characters not just talking about bad guy stuff or good guy stuff. They're talking about things like music and uh, that's very Pulp Fiction influenced and very mid nineties. Uh, the other one was, uh, Hensley, Jonathan Hensley. Mm-hmm. Hensley. Yep. And, uh, I think you're right. Sorkin was rumored to, to be a rewrite. Who, who came up with the pearls? Because that is, again, it's a movieism, but it's great, isn't it? What a vi- what a way to show the VX gas in this ridiculous formation. It's so convincing <laughs> that, uh, it ended up being a pretext on which to go to war with Iraq. I saw that, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, I read so that I too. In like a yeah. dossier of, of weapons of mass destruction or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, that's, wow. they've got these, uh, it's got a lot to answer. They've for got these story. green balls. And then, yeah, I think they spoke to one of the, the screenwriters on it. And it's like, well, it's clearly fucking stupid, isn't it? Why? <laughs> 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 of a rocket with a series of very, very fragile glass balls in it. Of course, they're going to smash immediately. Uh, would you want to pay a visit to uh, Siskel and Ebert Corner? Hey, yeah. Let's see what let's see what those two uh, those two thought of this one. Uh, this one wore out Gene Siskel for the first time, <laughs> uh, with his main issue being the pace of the editing. And uh, then Nick Cage won him over in the second half, saying that the film suddenly gained a human component. Uh, and then he inexplicably gave it a thumbs down, saying it was a goofball plot. <laughs> And he wanted to escape from the rock. How hilarious. And then uh, Ebert liked it. So good on Roger this time. He uh, admits that it borrows heavily from other films like Escape from Alcatraz and uh, Bullet and The Fugitive, he thought. Um, but he um, re- also referenced Tarantino and the, uh, the, the scenes that we just mentioned that mirror some of, mirror some of his work. Um, and then... What else did he say? Yeah, he he enjoyed it. He said it was put together well. He liked the Cage Connery chemistry, and something he said that I really liked, which was um, as soon as June the first comes around in Hollywood, premises go out of the window, <laughs> which showed that he understood what The Rock is designed to be, and he said he was stimulated and entertained. So good on good on Roger. He, he's Slightly underhanded compliment there from Rog, but I, yeah. I get what he's saying. He's um, <laughs> You'll take that from him. Yeah. Um, well, what, what about it? What about favorite scenes then, guys? What do we, let's, let's, let's go through a few favorites. Well, I found that the, the infold, I mean, it's the biggest kind of set piece in it and it's the most obvious one, but I was surprised at how genuinely moved I was when Michael Bean and the Marines get cut oh. down. That's really affecting. <laughs> That's my scene as well, though. Not in the shower room shootout, me too. The subtlety isn't always there, but in that sequence, it's like it, all the machismo and the, and the yelling and the, and the, the, yeah, it all comes together. It's, it's one of those moments where it's like every, every kind of the better parts of Bayhem 
and Bay's slash Simpson Bruckheimer's outlook of like, if you just amp everything up to this extraordinary degree, sometimes you get these tremendously cathartic sequences. And if you have any concern for the lives of your men, you will order them to safety their weapons and place them on the deck. This is not happening. Sir, we know why you're out here. God knows I agree with you. But like you, I swore to defend this country against all enemies, foreign, sir, and domestic. General, we've spilled the same blood in the same mud. You know goddamn well I can't get that We're dead. Your unit is covered from an elevated position, Commander. I'm not gonna ask again. Don't do anything stupid. No one has to die here. Man, following the general, you're under oath as United States Marines. Have you forgotten that? We all have shipmates we remember. Some of them were shit on pissed on by the Pentagon. But that doesn't give you the right to mutiny. You call it what you want. You're down there. We're up here. You walk into the wrong goddamn room, Commander. Goddamn it, Commander, one last time. You tell your men to safety their weapons, drop them on the deck. I cannot give that order. I am not going to repeat that order. I will not give that order. What the hell is wrong with you, man? Stand fast. Oh, my God. Let's waste these fuckers. One last time. You order your men to safety their weapons. Kind of made me wish at that point that... Uh, Bay had made an alien film. Maybe. Oh, it's like, very aliens. The cameras, the shoulder cams, the, the going through the, well, the, the tunnels. I thought that was all borrowed from aliens. I thought, like, he should have done it instead of Fincher, but that would have been too early. So him, him and Fincher were actually propaganda films buddies and, or, or, or rivals. And, uh, Bay really looks up to Fincher. So this idea that Bay could have maybe done uh, instead of uh, Jean-Pierre Jeunet, he could have maybe made something after Alien 3 in 1997 instead of Alien Resurrection. Uh, I would have been really up for that. A, a, a Michael Bay alien film around 97 would have been terrific, I think. But you're right about the uh, the shower sequence is great. And you see Ed Harris's conflict within when he keeps saying like, cease fire, cease fire, but it's, it's a yeah. bloodbath. And then you have that moment where he goes up to the camera and he sort of, you know, Damn you for putting me in this position. Yeah. But aside from that, it's just moments for me, little character bits, little lines, but I'll go with the shower room shootout. It seems like we've all uh, clicked with that one. Oh, uh, well, I, I, I will go with a quieter moment. I, I think it's the music. I inferred it earlier, but I do love Connery. Maybe it's Claire Filani because I did have yeah. a soft spot oh, for big it. time. Uh, post, meet Joe Black. post more rats. Uh, yeah. Meet, meet Joe Black as well. Um, I just love when he's like, you know, if you can believe I'm, I'm, I'm not a bad man. It's a stat. And all, all of that works because then when, when Cage comes in, you, that's when you see them really working well off each other. You broke out of prison again, didn't you? Why did you come to me? FBI, ma'am. Father's working with us. He's helping us resolve a dangerous situation. He is? Yes, ma'am. Well, gee whiz, John, I guess we ought to get going, huh? Whatever you say, Stanley. Thank you for that. You could have handled it differently. What do you say we cut the chit-chat a-hole? You almost got me killed twice, and my jaw hurts like hell. Good. Cocksucker. If I had my way, you would ship back to Wolfburg and leg irons and cage like an animal for the rest of your natural fucking life. You wrecked half the city. I, I'd also give 
a shout out to the opening good speed uh, at work scene when he's trying to defuse that bomb. I, I really like that. So, yeah. Exploding yeah. cockroach. A lot of setup there. It's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> Exploding cockroach. <laughs> Oh, there's a cool moment there that I, that I noticed on the rewatch, um, the exploding cockroaches. And presumably there's an, I know it's not the, it's not the same kind of gas, right? It's a different yes. gas. Yeah, yeah, it's a different yeah. gas in that. But at the end, but just before, um, uh, he injects the atropine, uh, Nicholas Cage after he's killed no his boyfriend hard. with the, yeah, no one knows <laughs> how. And, uh, um, if you look at that, there's a puddle next to him that is bubbling. And I wondered if that was a way of kind of showing, how the gas was affecting the the atmosphere around him. Like it, do, it doesn't explain on the why his, his skin melting. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But like, I, I don't see how an injection stops it from melting your skin. That's a good point. Mm, good point. But, yeah, yeah. But I guess, I guess, again, in movie terms, they set it up with if you stab yourself in the heart, you'll be okay. So it work. It works in the in the internal logic of the film. But yeah, like most things in the rock, it doesn't quite work if you apply. <laughs> Too much yeah. logic. Why? Why is there a flame ball heating system? But, it <laughs> yeah. but there's also just a quick one on the visual effects of the film as well. Like, Gally, you said you, the only thing you really remembered is is platoon moment at the end with the two green green flares. We've got green flares. Um, the composite yeah. of those, it's a really good fucking shot. And the planes, the composite yeah. of the planes flying over looks flawless, and the aerial shot of Alcatraz exploding looks fucking great. And I was looking back on these films, and you know. Maybe we speak more about Bruckheimer and his producing to make sure it looked great. But films nowadays with their visual effects don't match that somehow. How have we not? That how, plane shot that's broken down in the making of it really still cool. stands up quite well, doesn't it? Like a lot of the stuff made now won't last a few years. It'll just I, think it's, I, I never understand it's how very, it's very quick, isn't it? I think that's what helps is yeah. that they don't Maybe. put effect vfx shots on for so long that sequence of the the plane flying up from an exploding alcatraz is probably only a couple of seconds long and and it's not for the sake of it is it it's it's to actually aid the story rather than the other one i like is the stadium where it's just a rocket um uh, there's a shot above the stadium and you see that after hummel changes the coordinates it just kind of zooms off but it's very it's very quick Mm. But um, I guess the plane stuff is more challenging, and that's why it's more admirable yeah. that it still looks pretty decent. And then the miniatures underwater, Matt, that you mentioned, like that all looks yeah, the little kicking. Uh, the, 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 I've got it down, noted down as one of those films that's uh, that's still combining practical stuff, mm. miniatures, yeah. and little elements of CGI to just lift it instead of relying and leaning too much on it as a crutch. So it's one of those last films that. It combined all those departments and I, I really a real, like that. There's a real mm-hmm. texture and a physicality to the whole film. And we mentioned, I mean, we've, we've talked about the visuals, like the cinematography visuals a lot. And I think there's an extraordinary, uh, kind of lighting to it. Um, mm. every surface seems to have like a, a real, real gritty texture to it. I guess that's what helps yeah. with, you know, shooting on big practical sets and stuff. And, uh, and also every character has so much like, um, uh, variation, contrast in the lighting on their faces, mm. which I think is something you can't do these days when you are shooting digitally and you are shooting for a um, digital sure. immediate coloring afterwards. Oftentimes, they, right. you don't want heavy contrast in your cinematography anymore because it gets in the way of mixing and matching your shots. Before we before we go into our summaries, I mentioned about the bullet car chase. Anyone else? start laughing when the wheelchairs uh, start crossing the road. That was the bit where I was like, he is actually, is he taking the, the mic? The We've water got now a bunch of things as well. <laughs> well, no, the, wa- the, the water, the water I was expecting, I was expecting melons, 
but it was when the it was when the wheelchairs because he did it in Bad Boys as well. I was like, he's done it again. <laughs> he's put wheel like just a bunch of people in wheelchairs it's crossing the, the road. Stunt, like, the stunt woman OAP is fucking hilarious. It, it's a thirty-year-old stunt man in makeup, isn't oh, it? Oh man. <laughs> Like like the bold men and the witches just to fill out the scene. <laughs> well, I noticed a lot. Like I used to watch this on VHS a lot, and now that I've got the Blu-ray on a on a bigger telly than a, the little portable I used to have, you you kind of you see so much more. It's it's incredible how much uh, like the technology has moved forward. Like seeing it at the cinema would be fantastic, but I I really uh, got to break it down this time and see see a lot of details. Like you're talking about the texture of sets. Um, I, I think it almost damages it in a way because you're seeing that it's a set because it's so detailed and so well designed and made. It reminded me a bit of Waterworld, the way that that was designed. It didn't feel like a real world. It felt like almost like an amusement park ride, like you were talking about before. Overly so, constructed. Yeah, maybe, but it's, you, you know, you can't mark them down for designing something so beautifully, I suppose. But, you know, there you go. Excellent. Well, um, I think that is our discussion of the rock concluded so we'll go into our summaries um i'll start with you patrick final thoughts on the rock and would you recommend it to our listeners i would definitely um it's it's certainly a film that maybe i now enjoy and love even more after talking to you guys this morning just in the last hour but i've always it's always just been on my the back of my mind as something really fun and enjoyable. I don't want to say throwaway because I, I do quite like the characters in this film and I, I, I get into it because it works. The film works on me. And for all the reasons we've kind of discussed today, Connery's great, Cage is Cage, and I, I'm, we are all clearly big fans. We named about 20 of his films earlier. Um, and Michael Bay, I, we didn't really discuss his latter career, like this century, but is it his best film? It could well be, to be honest. I know Matt likes Armageddon a lot, but this one is just no nonsense, no apologies for what it is. It, it's stupid. It's entertaining. But uh, Matt spoke about also the boardroom scene, and I read something about, or was it on the audio commentary about Bay saying he understood that the boardroom scene was maybe where he's losing his younger audience, so he wanted to ramp it up thereafter. And I do think this is a film that definitely shows that Bay understands what sells, whether that's Simpson and Bruckheimer, who, you know, is a collaboration between them that understand what sells. But this, this is it. It's an actioner. It's really entertaining. It, it, I, I quite like the Michael Bay glossy look of this film, uh, that, that we've come to know, the low angles, the, the filters, the overwrought music. But I think the characters and performance here are particularly strong and memorable and enjoyable. The, the um elaborate dialogue, the seriousness of it really works for me. And I don't know what else I can really say, to be honest, because it's really, yeah, it's very entertaining and I like it very much, despite it being, you know, it's not like Taken that he's like fucking stupid and <laughs> not a very good film that I like it because it, because of that. This is a stupid film that I really like because... I don't really care and it's exactly what I want it to be, really. Um mm. Devlin, please. How do do you agree or do you have like other reservations? Um I do. I I I agree. I I guess I like a like a sort of it's not a full Sean Connery extraordinarily strong thumbs up. 
It's mm-hmm. more of a slightly sort of this week <laughs> thumbs up. Like, um, I, I wouldn't recommend that people just sort of immediately run out and watch it again. Oh, sure, sure. I, I, I don't think that it, it left that big a, uh, a mark on me, even watching it back this time. But what it was, was an extremely nostalgic and f- pleasant way of spending an evening. Um, I doubt I would have watched it intentionally and I, don't know whether I would have missed out if I, if I hadn't, uh, which I don't know. I don't want to damn it with faint praise because the one thing that it is, is like madly committed to being exactly what it is, which, uh, a lot of other action films feel more kind of committee driven and thus a bit kind of wishy washy. Uh, and even though we couldn't quite reasonably couldn't nail down who exactly is the author here, possibly because there are too many egos jostling to be considered the author. But what you ended up with is uh, uh, it all kind of coming together in a a very entertaining package that, that exemplifies and possibly shows the best aspects of a certain era of action filmmaking, you know, in all its kind of overblown excessive glory. It, it's different to something like Speed, which is extremely efficient, and can, and like, uh, um, very, uh, uh, professionally put together. This one feels, you know, a little wilder. It's sort of mm. dumb, but in a really good way. Like the, the script is dumb and the things that happen are dumb, but it's all executed with a flair and, uh, the, the people involved are not stupid. You know, I also, I don't think it has contempt for its audience either, which, you know, is a thing that you could possibly, level at some of this stuff you know we were saying like aiming things at middle america and that's, that can be quite a loaded phrase of you know as in yes yeah, so you're, you're shoveling this down the gullets of the dum-dums are you and i think that it's more that it's it's uh it's broad audience appeal as opposed to uh uh insulting audience appeal so it's a uh, mm, mm. i don't know it's 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 uh it's decent and, <laughs> I, and if you feel like watching it Watch it. If you don't feel like you need to see it, <laughs> if you don't feel like you need to see it again, like I think I get the rock. It's chances are you probably do. There's not a great deal of um, extra layers that you're gonna that you're gonna scratch off under the surface. But uh, yeah, tentative. I don't know. <laughs> that says uh, that says. Oh wow. I'm sorry. I'm I'm rewatching the film and I just got to the bit where uh, John Mason just disappeared and then reappeared in a completely opposite end of the island in two. Yeah, he transcended space and time again. <laughs> uh, what, a, what a great moment to pass that on to Galley for your final thoughts. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sit somewhere in the middle between Patrick and Devlin. I think one of the things that this film absolutely is, is a, is a representation of action films that no longer get made like this. You know, we didn't really touch upon it, but for me, you know, when, when Matt said about aiming for middle America, I think that is not to be an insult in phrase at all. I think it speaks to when Hollywood studios looked at the domestic audience as its primary target. And we've now shifted 25 years on now. It's international. Um, this is all a good thing, by the way. Um, but we look at more diverse casts. We look at characters that are actually fleshed out. We look at, uh, gender politics, making sure that there is balance across the piece. But what that has slightly done is it's meant that this cocaine fueled era no longer really exists. You know, if you watch, um, the Fast and the Furious films, they started as one thing and they very much become another. 
and 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 that's been echoed in other like major tentpole franchises. You just have to look at like Marvel, Star Wars. They've mm-hmm. all, and some people have rallied against it. Those those kind of older people that lived through the eighties and nineties action era probably look at it and go, "They've these films have lost their teeth." Um, it's I don't think it's got anything to do with that. It's got more to do with they need to recoup the money because they're spending so much on them. Therefore, you have to broaden the appeal beyond just your domestic audience and the rock feels like it was made boys with toys as in mind no no one else is really catered for this is a you know if you are a a boy i would say of a certain age you are gonna bloody love the rock and uh, and i certainly got that nostalgic feeling again but i recognize its flaws now and i recognize how limited it is you know i tried to watch this with danielle she disengaged with it quite early on actually and i think it is because it doesn't really cater for her like there's nothing for her to gravitate towards other than you know sean connery's scottish (laughs) so um so i think that was quite telling you know that is quite telling but i do think that this is an example of a film that doesn't get made anymore and it probably speaks to why michael bay also isn't you know top of the tree when it comes down to action directors but i'll tell you now we didn't really mention it, but I'll take a Michael Bay DC film over Zack Snyder because I bet it would be more fun. Um, so yeah, that's, that's where I say I'll recommend The Rock, um, to those people that have probably seen it before to new viewers. This is a really good send off for Sean Connery. You know, don't watch Entrapment. Certainly don't watch, um, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Watch The Rock. That's his like swan song. And, um, and yeah, you'll, you'll enjoy it. Cage is good in this. It's not full cage, but it's, you know, middle, middle action cage. Uh, so I'll recommend it. But, um, with those caveats that this film is, um, probably a time capsule of, of this era. What about you, Matt? Uh, I, th- I think it's got a, a fizzing script. Uh, but more than that, it's like a, a, a vibrant kind of childlike approach. It's got to it. Um, I think Simpson and Bruckheimer and Bay have vaporized my last few brain cells, <laughs> but I, I still think it's really funny as well. I'm re- I'm sorry, but like, Ranger Bob, I'm, I'm laughing. Ranger Bob. <laughs> the, the gay ha- hairdresser, I'm laughing. The shouty Japanese chef, I'm laughing. Uh, <laughs> and especially Cage really with his off the wall improvs. Um, I think this film in Armageddon contains something really rare and it's this combination of two elements, this huge budget, huge production and scale paired with a filmmaking ethos of like a student film. Uh, the way you were talking about the way, uh, Nicolas Cage was nervously shuffling his feet and like, that was just an idea that happened and Bay took the camera, put it on his shoulder and filmed it. And that happens throughout, um, his films. Um, particularly in in these days, I think. And uh, these little things happen on a whim and he captures them. And and they kind of distance, uh, those little things distance this from from other generic things that you were talking about. Like I'm not really a big Marvel guy and and things like that, but um, I I think those little details really help. Um, And they flesh out character and uh, it's a way of just throwing everything at the wall and, and seeing what sticks. He shoots for the edit, as they say. He's that kind of a filmmaker. And there's this very cool Darwinian thing that happens on his films, like the strongest lines survive and the strongest scenes survive. He has, I don't know how many screenwriters and the actors are improving and it's like a greatest hits of these little <laughs> t- 
tone defining moments that end up in the film. I think it's, it's kind of a high wire act to get it right. And he, he, I do like the tone of the rock and it maybe not, it's maybe not politically correct. You know, some of the, um, the stuff with minorities and things, but it's, it's kind of how you view it. I don't think it's malicious particularly. I think it's his, his humor. And I think he's, he's using that humor to, to sell his film. Like we said to middle America, I think that most people won't be uncomfortable in 1996 with a lot of those things. So whether they are now is another story, I suppose. But um, I, I think Bay can do this kind of film better than anyone else. Um, particularly at that time. I can't imagine anyone else doing it so well. John Woo came into my mind, but he wouldn't have the grasp of Americana or the English too language. Sentiment, and he's too, sen- <laughs> too sentimental as well, John Too Woo. many doves, too sentimental. Yeah. And, and I, yeah. he wouldn't get the nuances, like a strange word to include in a Michael Bay film, but there <laughs> you go. Um, appreciate it or not, like it's a very specific humor. And, and The Rock is Michael Bay. If you don't like him, you probably won't like the film. And uh, it's a high octane, expensive. The gloss of it is really unique to Bay. Um, it's a companion piece to Armageddon, which I do really like. But and it takes Bay's work to ludicrous proportions. It's like, how can a film ever be bigger than Armageddon? I don't know <laughs> if it can. It ever sounds be like sounds like Matt. We're <clears throat> going to find out when you pick it in the near future. It <laughs> well, <would> be- <laughs> well um, th- this one has kind of. Um, uh, taken away the desire to do to do it so you i'll give it another year or so before throwing another uh, brookheimer in the mix but um yeah i think it's designed fairly cynically to make money but at the same time there's something artistically valid about it and that's a weird dichotomy but um anyone who's like totally dismissive of this film and the departments involved to make this kind of stuff happen i think is being too snobby uh, anyone who says Bay is an idiot, he doesn't know what he's doing, or he's a hack. Just this guy's knowledge of lenses and what the lens does to a, a human face. Just that alone, he knows what he's doing. He he's worked on I don't know how many things, and he understands visuals. Um, I think the craft is here, um, and I think it, it sometimes feels like a brilliantly engineered car or a machine that can outperform others. Um, and I I. I remember when I rewatched it, I immediately messaged you to say like sandwiches. This is fucking brilliant. I, I love it. <laughs> and, um, uh, we got a new telly in our bedroom a while ago and I plugged it in and turned it on. And, and you know, when you turn on your TV and there's a, a presentation title for a film, it's just beginning and it was the rock. And I watched it on our new telly, like all the way through just to test it out, you know? So it, it stood the test of time for me. Um, mm. it's one of my favorite action films. Um, I must have seen it probably 30, 40 times in my life. Um, I will recommend it um, on a Saturday night with popcorn or a beer with your better half, if they're cool, and uh, or a group of mates. And uh, it's not going to challenge you intellectually, but as far as like 90s escapist action and entertainment and forgetting the world for a couple of hours, I think The Rock is a, a solid bet. So, yeah. Thanks for picking it, and uh, I enjoyed chatting about yeah, it. So, so yeah, so who picked no. it, Gally? Can we just say thank you? Uh, L- Lewis Norm. Thanks, Lewis. So thank you, Lewis. Yeah. Thank you, Lewis. Excellent. Uh, Matt, where where can Lewis and oh. the rest of our listeners now find The Rock? Well, our friends in middle America can uh, <laughs> currently uh, rent it on Amazon, DirecTV, Fandango, uh, Google Play, Microsoft, Vudu, um, Java, and they can buy it. 
Voodoo German. And our English friends, uh, I don't recommend buying it because you can't rent it anywhere at the moment. And if you buy it, it's 10 quid. So oh, get it on eBay. Yeah, eBay. I got it on eBay for two quid, um, on the DVD. Yeah, get, and get that DVD cool. or Blu-ray. Yeah, right. yeah, brand new Blu-ray for about five pounds, uh, which I think is ridiculous that you can't sort of, yeah, I, again, some sort of licensing issue or Could what be. is going on with the UK not Brooke, being able Brooke to Arnold. get the rock on yeah. any, any streaming? Yeah. There's some back new, uh, black 501s. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is that Brookheim or, or Simpson? Or I just used it there for, It was for, Simpson. For the, oh, okay. Yeah. No, uh, Brookheim must wear them in, as tribute to his friend. <laughs> uh, although they, they weren't friends at the end, but anyway. Um, cool. All right then. Well, um, well, what we'll do is I'll reveal the next listener request, uh, and who that is. Um, so this is from a, a David oh, Growls. Wow. Sorry, going right into um, it. Okay. Yeah. Who's, oh, exciting. Um, yeah. Yeah. Who is, uh, who wants us to discuss the paranormal activity. Ooh. Oh, yeah, that's my paranormal. I've never seen one of those. Yeah, films. never seen any of them either, Devlin. So um, I'll, I'll just watch the first one though, because I know there's like. 20. I went to the cinema to see that. Oh, did you? Okay. Well, he wants us to review the first film, the first paranormal activity. Okay, so cool. um, give it as an opportunity to maybe revisit a dead genre um, and see why it was so popular. But I'd never seen it at all. Like, not even. Yeah, I don't even think I've seen a trailer. I guess we will say our goodbyes. Before I do, if you enjoyed the episode, then please like and uh, leave us a little review on Apple Podcasts. That'll be great, or whichever podcast platform you use. And then that way, more people will uh, will come to the show. So that'll be a great way of giving us a bit of a, a leg up. Um, but yeah, I think we will uh, we will say our goodbyes, shall we? Shall we, team? So uh, so why don't we say we cut the chit chat? A-hole! It's Galley in Glasgow, signing out. Stay safe, everyone. I drive a Volvo, a beige one, and it's never in London. Losers always whine about their best. Winners go home and fuck the prom queen. It's Patrick from London. Whoa, whoa, hey, marriage police, pull over. (laughs) (laughs) Hummel from Alcatraz, out. Not really, it's Matt in South Korea. Thanks a lot, uh, everyone, and thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast. Mm-hmm.